Hey, this is Jonathan Williams, the teaching pastor at Forefront, welcoming you back to another Forefront podcast. Today is great for two reasons. Number one, Mackenzie Gomez is joining our Forefront podcast interview team. Mackenzie is part of our executive council here at Forefront, and she's a great person to get to know. You'll have the chance to get to know her as she's going to be interviewing a lot of people on this podcast from here on out. That is a great thing and good news. And secondly, we have an incredible conversation with Joe Lumen. Joe is a progressive theologian who has made her mark on social media. You have got to check her out. She is on Twitter and Instagram under the same handle, at Joe Lumen, J-O-L-U-E-H-M-A-N-N. She has changed my mind on a bunch of topics. She's not afraid to go places other theologians are afraid to go, and I am thankful for her voice. This conversation is going to be a great one. So make sure you listen and then rate us on all the places you listen to podcasts. uh, And rate us well, please, on all the places you listen to podcasts. Okay, without further ado, here is a conversation between me, Mackenzie Gomez, and Joe Lumen. Joe Lumen, thank you so much for, for being with us and joining us on the podcast today. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, I'm also with uh, Mackenzie Gomez, who is one of the executive council members at Forefront. I'm Jonathan Williams, the teaching pastor at Forefront. We're so excited that we get to have this conversation today. Joe, I I love your work, and your work is, is um, mostly on social media. You have a, a pretty big social media presence. Um, I'm really, uh, I, I'm always, I always... Uh, greatly admire uh, the stuff that you're willing to post and willing to put out there to the world. And then I also greatly admire the way that you bring hope to people and greatly admire the way that you handle the literally thousands of trolls that you have daily. I'm (laughs) I'm impressed by it all. So, I mean, I guess the way to start would be just to ask, you know, tell us a little bit of your story. How did, how did you get to a place where, you know, progressive theology mattered uh, to you uh, in a way that you wanted to make it part of your life's work? Yeah. So I grew up in Colombia and Colombia is a Catholic country, really. Um, You know, Catholicism is part of our culture. It's part of our society, whether we recognize it or not. And I talk a little bit about these two with people, how a lot of the things that we call secular are not really secular for for a lot of our countries, really, in the West. Um, They have been deeply um, influenced by Christianity. And I didn't recognize that until I started becoming more intentional about my relationship with God. And so my dad became a Christian when I was 14 years old. He moved to the U.S., became a Christian here in the U.S. And I became a Christian, too. We started going to church and having conversations. And um, and honestly, the, the approach was um, this is great because this is about becoming better people and therefore becoming better for our communities and for our society. And so that was appealing to me. Um, It was appealing to me to have conversations about what does it look like to be the best version of yourself and therefore show up in your community as the best version of yourself and make your community a better community. Um, And that, that was the appeal for me. And I have this type of personality where I am an all in or not in at all kind of person. So I jumped all in. And so I started reading my Bible and like very intensely. Um, I would read it with my dad because my dad has the same personality and ask a lot of questions. I was also all the time asking questions. Like my first question 
you know, it started with like Genesis 2. I had questions and then we moved on from there and I had questions about everything. And a lot of the questions, the way that my dad approached it was, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. So that was the relationship I had with my dad, who was officially speaking, kind of my first pastor. Um, and, and my dad is officially a pastor too. So now um, he got ordained. And so then I went to school. I went to a, my mom was in a Christian and she didn't want me to go to a Christian college and she was paying. So I went to a secular school. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a big secular school in Colombia. Uh, but I studied literature, which is English here in the U.S., but in Colombia, we speak Spanish. Um, so it's literature. And my minor was um, um, biblical studies, but it was from a literature standpoint. It wasn't from a religious standpoint. And so a lot of my teachers were Jewish, interestingly. Um, so my teacher that like the one that taught the Psalms was this Jewish woman in her 60s. And the way that she would speak about the literature um, you know, the literary aspects of these Psalms was absolutely captivating, just absolutely stunning. So, but she wasn't talking about theology. She was talking about, look at the beauty of what these people wrote and what did it mean to them in the same way that we were approaching the Odyssey, in the same way that we were approaching all these different texts. Um, so that definitely changed the way that I would approach my relationship with the Bible too. And then I moved to the U.S. to do an internship in an evangelical Christian megachurch. And that was a big mistake. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, I spent two years doing that. And because I have that personality that is an all-in or not-in kind of person, they loved me. And so they hired me. Uh, really soon after they hired me. And I didn't have any friends because I was Colombian and I didn't know anybody. So I would be the first, I, I got keys to this church too early. I don't know why they trusted me, um, but I got keys to the church. I was the first to come in. I was the last to leave. Um, so I was there 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Um, and I was an international student. And per my visa, I couldn't work more than 20 hours a week. So they only paid me 20 hours a week and they paid me really poorly. Um, so I was just there all the time, working a lot, getting a lot of um, classes through Oral Roberts University. So I completed all my classes through Oral Roberts University. Then I completed a whole bunch more classes through Portland Bible College and was able to get ordained. And so I got ordained, became a pastor, moved to San Diego to start a church, to help start a church here. I wasn't the one starting it. I helped start a church here. And it was the same draw. We're going to move away from this mega church that is clearly not doing the work that we are the most interested in. We're going to move into downtown San Diego and we're going to help people and we're going to be involved in the community. And we're going to talk about what is what does it look like to be the best version of ourselves and invite the community into that. And that quickly turned into we want to become a mega church. So I was here, at, you know, at the beginning, that was the idea. And we were doing all this really good work that I believed in. Um, and then soon, you know, we became exactly like the thing that we ran away from uh, because we weren't really asking questions. We weren't, you know, we were doing, we were using the exact same formula. Um, and so I worked in that church for 10 years. Um, I was, yeah, I was all kinds of things for that church. But the, the main thing that I was, I was supposed to just run the school of ministry, which we taught classes like um, theology classes. And I would rewrite the entire curriculum because I hated Portland Bible College. And so I would rewrite the entire curriculum. And then I was getting people to be able to get the credits through a university here in San Diego. 
And then they shut down the program um, because I was rewriting the curriculum. Uh, and so I was offered a job as a marketing pastor. And that was it for me. I, I don't believe in that. That's, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in marketing a church. Um, that just felt exactly like the mega church, you know? So I left. I quit. I left. And leaving gave me for the first time enough freedom to be able to question everything because I was away from my family. I was away from church. I was away from everything. I was actually alone and depressed. Uh, I didn't know what my career was going to look like, but I knew that I was free and safe to be able to ask whatever questions I wanted to. And so I did. Um, I asked all of the questions. One day, my husband got home from work he was doing Uber because we were both pastors and we didn't know what to do with our lives. So he started doing Uber at night. So he was doing Uber. He got home at like three in the morning. And I said, I bought tickets to Turkey. We're going to Turkey. So we left and we spent a whole bunch of weeks in Turkey, uh, visiting the seven churches of Revelation and visiting different biblical sites and just asking all of the questions and saying, what did it look like? What did it mean to be a Christian for these people, you know, as we were walking down the hidden cities, as we were walking everywhere saying, what did it look like to be a Christian for the people in these cities? What did it mean? And how far have we moved from that? And does it matter? You know, of course we moved far. It's been 2000 years, but does it matter that we've moved this far? And so I studied and read and read more and read more. And then I decided to start sharing all of the things that I was the conclusions that I was getting to and the things that I had learned both before I did this and after uh, in social media, hoping that I'd find somebody else that could say, yeah, <laughs> uh, because I felt like I was going crazy. You know, I was not just losing. I hadn't only lost my career. I was losing an entire identity, too, uh, and finding new identities that I didn't know I was holding. Um, and so that had been so marginalized that had been then uh almost yeah hidden completely hidden from me from my own psyche and so so yeah I started doing that and I thought I was going to find a couple of people that that would agree and be like yeah you're not alone but I didn't I found a lot of people that said absolutely and that has been just beautiful to be able to create different communities in different spaces where we um, where we are safe and where we are able to just question things and, and truly become better versions of ourselves so that we can be better for our communities. That was a really long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's appreciated and, and so fascinating. I, I want to go back for a second here. And you're talking about planning this church in mm -hmm. San Diego and you were there for 10 years, right? And you're rewriting this curriculum while also noticing that it was going into this mega church direction. What was going through your head at that point? Were other people on staff with you also wanting to rewrite curriculum, also wanting to not go the mega church route, or was it just you? How were those conversations? Were they happening? What was going on in your head at that time? They were awful. That's how they were. <laughs> they were terrible. Um, every staff meeting for me was excruciating. I, I hated going because the, the main person fighting was me. Uh, and mind you, this is a church full of white people. Um, I am one of two women of color on staff. And the other woman of color is a black woman who was leading children's ministry. And she's a really good friend of mine still. And her and I left at the same time. Um, but I was the only one saying like, what are we doing? I don't understand what we're doing. This is not 
what we signed up to do. We're just so concerned about bringing more people in to fill a financial quota, but we are not necessarily helping people. We're just pushing them and they have to volunteer and they have to do all these things. And we are even bypassing their agency and manipulating them to get to give more and not just financially, but of their time. Uh, and I kept asking, like, what does it look like to have family as a priority if we are demanding so much time of people to be given to the church? So, I mean, those they were un, like I was annoying um, because they wanted to do a thing and I wanted to do a different thing. And I thought I could do it inside. And I think that I had to get to this place where I realized I'm just in the wrong place. They want to do a thing that I'm absolutely not interested in. And I loved these people. When, when I left this church, the, the person that would get my children if I died was the pastor. Like, this is the relationship we had. I, had. I had access to all of their information, their house. We were really close friends. We loved each other. So I didn't want to leave them. But I had to get to this place where I realized we have absolutely different goals. And... It isn't them who are wrong. They are doing what they believe is right for them. They are harming people. They were harming me. Um, and they're going to have to deal with that. But it is not my job to fix them or change them or to try to change. Like, I just have to leave and do my own thing. I So it, was, it wasn't until I realized that, like, this is just not the place for me that I left. It took me seven months, though. No, not, that's not true. It took me years. But from the moment I said I have to leave to them, like I verbalized to them, it took me seven months of meeting with them once a week to have conversations that were exhausting um, and where they were trying to convince me that the problem was me and that I had seen in my life uh, until I just said, I just need you to let me go. Oh, because I had been told that I couldn't leave without their permission. Um, so it took seven months until they said, okay, you can leave. And by the way, this is not permission. We are convinced you're going to come back regretting your decision. I haven't. It's been six years. I won't. That, I mean, that in itself is, yeah, outrageous in some respect. You know, yeah. you talked a little bit about how with your dad, yeah, you were able to question and Genesis 2 being your first questions. And yeah, I, I resonate with that. I think that was the first, my first questions as well were around those passages. Um, <laughs> and then you had this, sounds like a pretty wonderful experience at university where you were able to see scripture in a really different light. When yeah. you were in the megachurch world or megachurch, um, uh, you know, culture were you able to pose some of those same questions was it free uh or did you have to toe the line um was there a theological stance that was taken and you had to follow that there was definitely a theological stance that was taken um one of my one of the professors that we had there had been trained at oral roberts and um really smart guy you know he spoke koine greek so who does that? Um, just really brilliant. And I remember in one of the classes, I, uh, we were talking about Romans. The class was about Romans. And I, I said, I, it's very hard for me to understand um, why Jewish people won't go to heaven, according to this theology that you're teaching, because they worship the exact same God. And his response was, um, just read the Bible, Joe. Um, so you know, that there was no room really for questioning. It was, I told you that's what the Bible says. Therefore, that's what's true. Um, so there wasn't a lot of room. Now, I, I did go to Point Loma Nazarene University where I got my master's and the experience there was totally different. Like a lot of questions, a lot of different traditions. Uh, my class was 
it was only it was a it was a master's program so everybody was in ministry everybody was a pastor or training to be a pastor and there was a lot of room for questions and there were people from different traditions and there was a lot of room for disagreements and that also gave me a lot of permission to be able to say like oh that this is I can do this if I can do this in my university clearly it should be able to be done at church um, I just needed to find the right spaces to be able to do that yeah I mean it makes a ton of sense and it seems like you found the space to do that now um, and you talked about uh, you know at the at the end of your story creating these spaces that allow us to to grow personally as better people to grow communally yeah. what 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 do you feel like what do you feel like are the ways that you're able to do that? How is that happening right now? Yeah, I, I often talk, I read this book called um, The Biology of Belief. That was a while ago. And in that book, uh, he talks about how the, our, at the cellular level, even at the cellular level, if we don't feel safe, we cannot heal. Um, and I remember sitting there and thinking like, that makes so much sense. I never felt safe inside of the evangelical church. So I could never become that better version of myself that I had been promised because the whole time, because of toxic and abusive theology, because of the way that um, uh, authority is exerted over people, especially women, especially immigrant women, um, I never felt safe. So I was always performing to belong. I was really always performing to be accepted uh, and always uncomfortable and betraying my own self saying this doesn't make sense to me this doesn't feel right to me but if I voice that more than I am already doing it they will remove their belonging and I need belonging I'm I'm an immigrant woman alone here um, and this is everybody for me and so it wasn't until I was able to feel safe that I was able to start healing. Um, and so it is my intent to create those safe spaces and safe spaces are created first by becoming a safe person. Um, you know, safe spaces are not necessarily a building are not necessarily a church or anything like that, but it's the people like a church can seem safe, but if the people in it are not safe, then it's not a safe space. So for me, it started with what does it look like for me to be safe for me first? Am I comfortable telling myself the truth? Am I, I call them, um, your hidden motivations? Am I even safe enough with myself to tell myself these hidden motivations that nobody admits out loud? And so I started journaling and writing everything down, the things that I wouldn't admit, the things that I didn't want anybody to read, the things that hurt. You know, like I sat down and I wrote, I don't want to be married. I don't like having children. Um, I, I want to die. Um, things like that. And I the intent was to get out all of these things because I needed to become a safe space for me first. I needed to be able to give myself permission to say, you don't have to perform you don't, for yourself. Like how silly, right? We perform for ourselves too and pretend to be things that we're not, even though deep down, we know the truth. We just hide it so well. So I made a commitment to never betray myself again and to tell myself the truth. So I spent a lot of time journaling, um, too much maybe, and um, I ask questions all the time, like what's going on when I'm frustrated or when I'm whatever it is, you know, what's going on? Why, what's going on within me? What is the hidden motivation? Not the, not the shallow, you know, I didn't eat today. And sometimes that actually is the deep one um, <laughs> because food is very important for me. Uh, but the, you know, what, what is really going on? Why am I so frustrated? What are the things that are 
that that this event or this behavior or whatever it is that the things that are going on in my life what is it that they are pointing out that are hurting me and that I'm trying to appease or bypass or ignore um so as I became a safe person for me it allowed for me to become a safe person for others too so I tried to create spaces like that so yeah there are different spaces that I've been able to create and and curate really where there is safety because if I get to show up as myself here, everybody does too. And that means, you know, there's no judgment. I'm, I'm going to just listen to where you're at um, and just ask a lot of questions. This, um, the idea of safe space, the idea of becoming a safe person. This is, I mean, I, I think there's a sense in which there's, um, it's very therapeutic, right? So I, I, know, I know some of us get to do a little bit of that in therapy, but the way that you've talked about doing it feels a bit novel kind of like a novel idea. Do you find that there are people who, um, I guess, are, are coming to you or are saying that you talked about curating space? How do you go about curating that space? Because what's interesting to me uh, is that, I don't know, there's a sense in which we can deconstruct faith, we can decolonize faith, we can do all that. But if we're doing it in unhealthy ways, in some ways, I feel like we're just moving from one unhealthy place to the next. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And, and what I love about what you're up to is that you are like, no, let's get healthy first. Right. So can you talk a little bit more about that curation, a little bit yeah. about the way that you do that? Yeah, absolutely. And we, uh, you know, I make a differentiation between decolonizing and dismantling. Um, and and that, that matters. And deconstruction. So deconstruction, you can deconstruct your faith or you can deconstruct whatever you want. But because of what I talked about earlier, the, the idea that secular is not really secular. Secular doesn't exist. That's not true. Secular is, um, it's a lie. You know, we have all of these things that we believe are secular. And in reality, they are deeply laced with a lot of Christian ideologies because Christianity is the dominant religious identity in the West. So knowing that uh, we can say, okay, I'll deconstruct. That doesn't mean that I am going to stop being harmful. It just means that I am walking away from certain ideologies that don't serve me. That's it. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to harm somebody else. So that's where decolonizing and dismantling come into place. And decolonizing is the work of divesting um, from systems of oppression, but it's divesting from systems of oppression from within. Um, so the only people that decolonize are those who have been colonized, right? So you're decolonizing from the ideologies that have lied to you about who you are, about your worth, about all of these things. So you are divesting from all of that. And that is a work in healing. Decolonizing is a work in healing yourself. Now, if you are an um, privileged identity, you're not decolonizing because you weren't colonized. Nobody told you that you were less worthy for being a white man. Nobody. Um, but what you're doing then is first asking questions of your implicit biases. What are the things that I have been told about the other instead? And in that sense, your work becomes now dismantling the system, uh, which is really hard work because dismantling the system means quite literally betraying your privilege. It means what does it look like for me to become a safe space is I need to betray all the things that are good for me, uh, just for me. So um, my, my husband and I talked, have talked about this because he's a white man. And he, I said, I had to learn to stop betraying my ancestors while you had to learn to start betraying yours. 
And it is, it is that work, you know, becoming a safe wow. space becomes understanding what are my identities and therefore what is my relationship to other identities in relationship to that? What does it look like for others to be safe in my space? So I made a, I made a, I had a conversation once with a lot of people. And the question I asked is how do marginalized identities feel in your presence, given your identities, who feels safe in your presence? And I had to, I have to live with the fact that because I am a Christian pastor, most people will not find them, themselves safe in my presence. And it is not their job to give me the benefit of the doubt. Like it is not uh, anybody's job to give a white man the benefit of the doubt. Like it is nobody's job to give cisgender people the benefit of the doubt or able-bodied or skinny or, you know. Uh, instead, as a in my privileged identities, it is my job to prove that I am safe. And what does that mean? Well, it's a per like that's the thing. We don't have... Uh, we cannot have formulas because it depends on the person that I'm sitting in front of. It depends on the community that I'm looking at. So I recognize if I'm talking to a Muslim person, I recognize what kind of, um, what, what will be activated, what kind of trauma will be activated in them when I say I am a Christian pastor, you know? And if I am talking to a fat woman, what trauma is going to be activated the moment that she sees me um, you know, and the, the moment that she sees, I talk about, I understand and recognize that I am the woman of color with the most um, notoriety inside of the deconstruction world. And I know for a fact that that is in part because of the way I look. And recognizing that and naming it and telling people, why are you not listening to all of these other women of color? Why are you not listening to all of these non-binary people, to all of these trans women? I know why. We know why. It's your implicit biases. And I get, and my responsibility is to name that me. I have to name it because I, I have the privilege, right? So I, a trans woman or a fat woman is going to know that she is safe because I'm naming that out loud because I'm making room for her. Because when we're talking about body positivity, I will not center my voice. That's ridiculous. I should not center my voice. So we can only prove that we are safe by being it. And that means different things for the identities that I am sitting in front of. So being deeply aware of who is in my space, who is in my community, who am I talking to? Uh, and funnily enough, most of the people that I talk to are white women, not most, but a lot. I don't feel safe around white women. It is me who doesn't feel safe. So I'm deeply aware of that all the time, but they are not aware of the fact that I'm not safe. Um, you know, because we have not been conditioned to consider how does another person not feel safe? And we've been conditioned to give privileged identities all of the benefit of the doubt. Like, why don't you give me the benefit of the doubt? You don't have, I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to. And quite honestly, historically, I shouldn't. Um, so I think that that's, that's how you create or foster or curate safe spaces. Recognize your identities, recognize the people that are in your space and name name it, name it. Like, I understand that you are not safe in my space. I mean, not like that boldly necessarily always, but um, just being aware, like I understand how this person may not feel safe and asking them, how, self, how safe are you with me? So I, I have a group, um, it's called Do Better Church and we are a team, it's about 10 of us. Um, and we often talk about these things, you know, are you, are you safe? Are you safe to say whatever you need to say? How do you, 
How do you feel in this space? How do I make you feel? How can I make it better for you and easier for you to be able to voice the things that you need to voice? Do you feel like your belonging is all the times, you know, like being dangled in front of you or not? Um, do you know that your belonging is intrinsic in this group? Um, so if we are able to have these conversations openly, then people are going to feel safer and safer in our spaces. You're speaking a word, Joe. Wow. <laughs> um, so many things are are coming up for me listening to this. And one of the, I, I recognize what you're saying of like, in who you're talking to, recognizing what traumas might be coming up just by nature of being on the receiving end. What does that look like in a church, right? Like yeah. what can a church do? What is a church's role in decolonizing, deconstructing, dismantling, et cetera? faith and theology, like what should churches be doing, especially what's coming up for me is interchanging who, who the one preaching is. Because right. for me, I, I preached for the first time this Sunday and it's very different than when Jonathan preaches because right. we are the opposite identities, right? right. Uh, he's a straight white man. And, and here I am a woman of color, a gay woman, I have short hair, I'm not skinny. And I'm not only thinking of it was really interesting, not only thinking of the traumas that might come up for people that relate to my identity, but also I'm preaching to white men as well. Right. So what does that look like in a church? What do you, what do you suggest churches do in those, in those settings? I think that churches could have more spaces to have conversations. Um, you know, and unfortunately we don't have enough spaces in churches for people to be able to have conversations safely. And I know that churches are working, progressive churches, let me be clear. I know that progressive churches are working really hard at um, breaking that divide between first-class Christians and second-class Christians. And first-class Christians are the ones that get to preach right? As though the rest of us don't have a story to tell. Um, and second class Christians are everybody sitting down listening to the message. Um, so if we can start challenging that notion that everybody has actually a story to tell and everybody has a message, um, then we start making an effort to listen to more voices. Now, marginalized identities don't have a responsibility to make privileged identities comfortable at all. So a woman of color preaching should like if men, if white men are uncomfortable while you're doing that, that's kind of their problem, not yours at all. <laughs> it's I not yours that. at all, because this is the thing. They are comfortable in the world. In, in fact, the discomfort that they are feeling is part of the dismantling. They should sit through discomfort. Discomfort is part of how we're going to help them dismantle. Discomfort is part of, um, for them, uplifting the voices of those who are most marginalized. Uh, so when I talk about people feeling safe in my spaces, I mean those who are not safe. But white cis hetero men are safe everywhere. Um, I, I, when I started traveling, I always traveled alone or with my sister. And then I traveled with a husband. That was a new experience for me. And when I was traveling with my husband, he goes, why are they stopping you? Why do they stop you everywhere? Why do they ask you so many questions? Why is your back? Why does your back have holes? Why did they just ask you for an x-ray? Yes, they have asked me for x-rays. Um, one time they took me to a different room for two hours. He wasn't allowed to go in. This was in Mexico City. And he goes, that is so weird. And I was like, nope, it is not. That is my experience in the world. Everywhere I step foot in the world, I am looked at with suspicion. I have a Colombian passport. 
I am a woman with a Colombian passport walking through the world. Everywhere I walk into, I am looked at with suspicion. Everywhere you step foot in, you're celebrated for being there. And that changes our experience in the world. So I don't necessarily care for you to be comfortable because the world is already crafted in such a way that you are comfortable. In fact, what you need is a bit more discomfort. Um, you need to be more uncomfortable. So when I talk about safe spaces, white men are not unsafe, no matter what you are going to say, you know, when you're standing in front of that church, they are going to be uncomfortable. Uh, the safety aspect is, is my humanity being denied or is my life in danger? And so for people that have, th that have to ask those questions of themselves or that have that experience all the time, what does it look like for me to ensure, or what does it look like for a church to ensure you, especially Christian churches, because we are the dominant identity religious group, right? What does it look like for a church to ensure that LGBTQ people know your humanity will not be denied here and your life is not in danger here? Quite the opposite. We will stand. Can I curse here? I just did. Yeah, so you're allowed to curse. That. Yeah, yeah, you're good. I will stand in front of anybody trying to throw, uh, trying, trying to throw a rock at you and you. I will stand in front of them. That's what churches that are safe are supposed to be doing, right? I'll stand in front of the immigrant and the ICE, um, what are they called? Officers or whatever. I'll stand in front of the cop and the black person. That's what a church that is safe is doing. I will stand between them because church, Christian churches are dominant identity groups. They are not marginalized groups as a, as a collective. Of course, inside of it, there are people that are marginalized, right? Um, so yeah, it looks different, but I do think that continuing to disrupt the first-class Christian and second-class Christian is really important and continuing to uplift the voices of those whose humanity is not um, valued and whose life is in danger in this society are ways in which churches can become safer spaces for everyone. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I, it's so incredibly important. I know that I used to be a teacher and we used to say, and I say this all the time, I feel like, but who cares? I'm going to keep saying it. Um, you have to say something nine times in order for somebody to get it. That was, that was what we were taught um, in nine different ways. And it was a positive thing that, you, that one must say nine times. And what's interesting is when I think about like my fellow white cis, you know, cis heteral men, um, when I think about us, it, it seems like we need to be told nine times, 10 times, 11 <laughs> times, hey, you need to start giving stuff up. You need to start feeling uncomfortable in order for people to get it. And so just to almost as an addendum to your, uh, to your response. Um, I love that you're, you're basically saying that you, you uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong. So I just want to, I'm, I'm asking for that confirmation. Do you feel like it needs to be something that we say from the pulpit over and over your job as a privileged person is to be uncomfortable and to say that until the church finally gets it. Do you think that's what creates the safe space? I think we definitely need to have more conversations about what does it look like to be privileged and dismantle and dismantling will be uncomfortable every time. If you are comfortable inside of an oppressive system, you are an oppressor. That's it. You, that's it. Because marginalized people are uncomfortable by default, right? But if you are a privileged identity and you are also very comfortable, what does that say about you? If inside of an oppressive system you're comfortable, then 
you are part of the oppression. You're complicit in it. Even if you're not the one throwing the rock, you're complicit because your silence is complicity. So yeah, get uncomfortable. Read the uncomfortable books. Listen to the uncomfortable people. Follow the crazies. You know, I like to call them crazies because that's what society calls us. Follow those crazies who are getting in front of the ones throwing the rocks. Follow them. Watch what that looks like. Um, feel the adrenaline through your body of knowing that these people might not make it to tomorrow. I was talking to a friend. I think I told you this on the phone too, Jonathan, about how we want heaven on earth, right? That's the goal. That's what I want. That's what I'm fighting for. And I have to believe that heaven on earth is real. Otherwise, I don't see a purpose in life. Um, so that's it. Like heaven on earth. That's what I'm shooting for. That's, that's it. That's where I'm going. And what does it look like? Heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is a place where there's no suffering for anybody. Not pain. Pain and suffering are different, but no suffering. Nobody's suffering, which means nobody has unaddressed pain. For that to happen... We have to follow those who have had to crawl out of hell because those who have never experienced hell have no idea what it looks like to move away from it. This is hell for a lot of people right now. This is hell. And a lot of people have had to crawl out of hell. Those are not the privileged identities. Privileged identities have experienced discomfort. They have experienced, for sure, suffering, some sort of suffering and pain. But for the most part, a lot of it is heaven for them especially the most privileged that you are, right? The Koch brothers, I just learned this yesterday and I was pretty angry. The Koch brothers created an entire Western United States that was good for them. And the reason why we don't have good um, public transportation in most of the Western cities of the United States is because the Koch brothers didn't want that. So instead, they put money into making sure that lawmakers were passing different projects for creating wider cities where people needed cars. And so we have a society that quite literally has been created for the most privileged. And so we have to, um, yeah, we, I forgot my point completely. No, your, your, point, makes a ton, your point makes a ton of sense. Um, what I, what I, I hear you saying, there was a something no, no, you, you, you have a point. So I, <laughs> I, I, I hear you saying this, like, like in some sense, I hear you saying that, listen, the world is rigged, right? And it is, I think, mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. we get that. We have Hell, a similar, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We have a similar experience in, in uh, New York where the person who designed all of our highways back in the forties and fifties, this designed the bridges low enough that buses could not get underneath because buses would be the ones that would send people out, uh, that would send people of color out to the suburbs. So all the, all the highways in New York, you, you can't take buses on them. You can only take cars. Similar thing. It's all rigged towards the right. privileged person. Right. And when right. everything's rigged towards the privilege, you have hell, uh, you, you have, you have hell for others. And so I think your point, um, I mean, it matters greatly. And, and I think church wise, you know, it, it makes sense to speak, um, you know, too often we speak on like that personal relationship with Jesus. For me, I, I'm in so much agreement with you. I love it. Like if we're creating heaven on earth, then we got to speak to the systems that create hell for others. Yeah. And I love and, that you're saying that. Yeah. And that, that was my point, right? That if we want to, if we want to move toward heaven, we have to crawl ourselves out of hell because we're in hell. And the only people that can lead us out of hell are those who have had to crawl out of hell. And that is the marginalized. That is the marginalized. They will lead us out of hell because they had to. They had to crawl themselves. And this I learned from my friend, Jamais, um, who's a trans black man. And he said that. He said, I didn't learn theology because I wanted to have a job or because it was my family tradition or because I wanted to belong into a space. I didn't belong. I was a trans man, a black man. 
I learned theology because it saved my life. I needed to stay alive. And theology was what kept me alive. And it is the same for me. People ask me all the time. There is very little about Orthodox theology that I subscribe to. I don't, yeah, very little. Um, and people tell me like, why the hell are you still a Christian then? Like, why are you still a Christian? And I was like, because Christ saved my life. Because in the darkest, deepest depression, in the, in the most horrible part of my story, in the parts where I was quite literally hoping to not exist anymore, where I was hoping a meteor would just hit us and be done, or I would just fall off a bridge. Um, during those times, it was understanding the idea of the Christ, the cosmic Christ, that, that I was a part of something bigger, that divinity held me and divinity was within me and around me. It was the idea that I was something bigger than I thought myself. The fact that I could see divinity in me and I could see it peeking through my own healing and through my journaling, I could see it. I could see divinity peeking through it and I could see divinity in others. Um, it was the reason that I, you know, stayed here. It's the reason that I am healing. My healing is so deeply tied to the Christ that, and, and there is so much that oppressive systems and oppressive Christianity has stolen from me that I refuse to let them steal the Christ too. So Christianity is mine, not because I was told that it had to be mine, not because I studied and I have all of the right theology, not because any white man told me that Christianity can be mine. Christianity is mine because I fought with God. I fought with divinity. I fought with the Christ. And here I am still. Here I am, the Christ speaking through me more and more every day. So no, Christianity belongs to me. I fought for it. Um, it wasn't something that it was that was given to me. It was something that I fought for. I had to crawl myself out of toxic Christianity to actually find the Christ within me. Um, so that's my point, that if we want to do better as Christians, if we want to do better as a church, and when I speak of church, I just, I'm speaking of, of us, you know, all of the humans that contain the church. Um, if we want to do better as a church, then we have to learn to fight with God. And we have to, and I, that's why I love the story of Jacob. We have to learn to fight with God and God will change our name and he will hit our hip and we will walk differently. Um, we will never walk again in the same way that we walked before. And we will never be Jacob anymore. We'll become Israel, all of us. And, but that requires a very long, excruciating night of fighting. And so the people that have never had to fight don't get to tell the rest of us what Christianity looks like. For you, you are Jacobs, and, and that's good, that's fine. But don't tell the rest of us who are Israels that Christianity doesn't belong to us or that we don't know how to do it right or that this is too uncomfortable. Well, yeah, go fight with God and see how uncomfortable it actually gets. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, like, like wow, wow. Mac, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We can get back. No, yeah, no, it's all good. Um, Joe, all of that. You you are made in God's image. Right. You're, we are all made in God's image. And just because white people try and tell us that they are gifting us Christianity or gifting us whatever, it's like, no, this is between me and God. Right. Not between me and you. Right. And part of part of this toxic Christianity that that comes in is is around sex right and around purity culture and things like that and we're actually in a sex positivity series right now and we just started and you've done a lot of work unpacking 
Christianity and sex. Can you talk more about that intersectionality? Yeah. Um, well, patriarchy and Christianity have been married for too long. For And by too long, I mean always. Um, so uh, patriarchy and the demonizing of sexuality are deeply connected, right? Uh, because really the demonizing of sexuality was not so much about demonizing men's sexuality at the beginning. It was about demonizing women's sexuality. Uh, it was about telling women, you don't get to you don't get to exist outside of our purview, outside of what we tell you, you get to be, and we're going to control your sexuality because of that. Um, because you're not humans, you're just an, um, we're just gonna use you to be able to create other humans that are going to take over our land. Um, so because of that ideology of, and those are ancient ideologies, you know, they are ancient ideologies that I think are rooted in fear, the fear of there are these humans that can actually birth other humans. That's freaky. And they are too powerful. So we're going I to was have just going to gonna say, them. we're too powerful. Too powerful. <laughs> they are too powerful. We're going to have to subject them to our rule. Um, and I believe that white supremacy is no different, right? Rooted in fear. And all, I mean, capitalism is not different either. It's rooted in fear. All of it is rooted in fear. Um, a lot of trauma that helps us humanize the oppressors so that we don't become oppressors ourselves, but it also is like, just heal your trauma so you don't start an entire system of oppression for the love of God. Um, so yeah, sexuality becomes this thing that is easy to demonize. And the thing with sexuality and Christianity is that if you are able to demonize people's relationship with themselves, which you are able to do through sexuality, then you have a whole bunch of people that are actually dependent on this God, on this idea of God that you have created to be able to feel like they are whole or healthy or good or accepted. Um, so sexuality becomes this very um, powerful and effective. That's the word I'm looking for. Sexuality becomes a really effective weapon to divorce people from themselves and tell them you need us to be able to be complete. You need us to be able to be accepted. You need us for God to be able to look at you and say that he likes you and you want God to like you because if God doesn't like you, you're going to end up in hell and you don't want to end up in hell. Um, so I'm going to control your sexuality and call something that is rather natural demonic and bad and evil and gross and make sure that you don't have a relationship with yourself so that you're easy to control. And that's where the dependency of Christianity and people becomes um, such a big part of the way in which Christianity has related to humans. That's why people couldn't read the Bible themselves. That's why women couldn't become priests or can't become priests. Um, that's, you know, like maintain people distanced from divinity, maintain people away from divinity so that they have to depend on the most powerful to be able to access divinity. And sexuality becomes then a great weapon to demand that people be distanced from themselves, distanced from the divinity that is within them. Because if my sexuality, my sexual desire, um, my own even physiology, my biology, the fact that I have a vagina is good enough reason for God to be away from me, then I'm going to need this person that is closer to God to give me access to God too, because that's all I want. I just want, we have these basic human needs. And one of our basic human needs is to be loved and accepted and wanted and to transcend. And all of those things are related to, they are coming from within us, right? But if they cannot come from within us because you've divorced me from myself, they have to come from somebody else. So the church inserts, the toxic abusive church inserts itself there and says, I can give you access to God 
it's perfect. And so sexuality just became a really healthy, a, a really not healthy, a really powerful weapon of oppression that kept people unhealthy. Um, oh, it makes my skin crawl. I know. I <laughs> it's know. It's just painful. I mean, it turns, it's turning God into this grooming abuser. Right. That's exactly what it is. Um, I was, I was thinking through that the idea of God as a grooming abuser and how even from the beginning, right? Like the way that it, the conversation starts is God loves you. It's always God loves you. It's never God's going to send you to hell. Nobody starts there. It's always God loves you. You are accepted by God. Um, God wants to be with you. He wants to be close to you. And then you're like, okay, you're in, like you come in. You're like, totally, I'm coming in. God loves me. And they go, oh, by the way, you have to do all of these things for God to keep loving you. You have to behave in these ways for God to keep loving you. Um, if you don't do all of these things, God will remove himself from you. And if you do it more and more and more, then he'll remove himself from you for eternity. And that is exactly the way that groom that grooming behavior works, right? I love you. I love you. Oh, but now you have to do all these things. And if you don't do them, then I won't love you anymore. Uh, and you start, you feel safe with the individual first you feel safe with this god first only to find out that once you are completely hooked in the idea of being loved and being accepted they get to dangle that in front of you and you'll tolerate a lot of abuse so long as love and acceptance is not removed and what we don't realize is the love and acceptance that's being removed is from individuals you can never be separated from the love of God. That's that's actually true. You can never, it's within you. It's you are accepted because you exist. You belong because you exist. God is within you. You're part of divinity. Um, but that's exactly the grooming behavior that toxic abusive churches and people are dancing in, right? I will dangle the belonging, not belonging to me, but belonging to divinity itself. Uh, and you have to do what I say. So we conflate abuse and love, we conflate care and control, we conflate respect with just submission, really. And then people stay in cycles of abuse thinking, well, this is love, they care for me, they love me. No, you just have no idea what love looks like. I, it's like, I don't even know what to say. It's just that, because then that mirrors in people's relationships with other humans right it, it mirrors that that toxic Absolutely. relationship that is set up with how mainly women are trying to approach god it's how they end up approaching a romantic their, relationship. their romantic relationships absolutely and, these and that also, cycle abuse right just continues and, and i mean it affects every relationship in our lives the reason why we a lot of us were especially marginalized identities um especially racial marginalized identities, the way in which we were raised mirrors exactly that relationship. I hate you because I love you. I abuse you because I love you. I verbally abuse you because I care for you. I'm trying to make you better. I'm trying to make sure that you're not away from me. I'm trying to make sure, uh, no, you are just abusing me. <laughs> there are different ways of doing these. But we justify all of that behavior because if God, the creator of all, the one that is all good, can abuse me and harm me and send me to hell, you know, send me to eternal hell, eternal torment, um, because I don't subject myself to these rules, then certainly my father and my mother and or whatever, my parent um, can do the same thing. 
and it is love, and we're going to call it love. And absolutely, we translate that into all of our other relationships, into romantic relationships and our friendships, and we become really, really good at manipulating, and then we call it love and care, and we use God to be able to justify our behavior, because this is not just my idea. You can absolutely scrutinize all of my ideas, but this is God's idea. You cannot scrutinize God's ideas. So it's, it's uh, well, quite honestly, it's brilliant, um, incredibly harmful and abusive, but brilliant nonetheless. <laughs> so what do you think about in, so we're talking about, you know, toxic Christian spaces. What about in progressive Christian spaces that are trying to change the narrative, right? Yeah. Trying to preach actual good news, not abusive good news, good yeah. news, right? In quotations. What does that look like? What, how, how does a church or how do Christians within a church find or pursue healthy sex, healthy sexuality, views on sexuality, romantic relationships? You know, obviously we're talking about that mirroring of our, right. our romantic relationships, mirroring the relationship that we are being taught between us and God, is it just as simple as changing that narrative of what it looks like between us and God? There has to be more there. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's, it's the same thing that we were talking about earlier, right? We become safe spaces as we heal. And so as we heal our relationship with ourselves, as we heal the narratives that we have about ourselves, we also heal the relationships in which we are around. We don't tolerate abuse anymore. We don't tolerate, um, you know, we don't betray ourselves for the sake of somebody else. That changes everything. It, it, so the more that I've been healing, the more that my relationship with my children has changed. I don't see them as... Um, possessions I don't see I don't see my job in their life because see they teach you these things it's so it's so it's so insidious it comes in just these little tiny ways and it seems so innocent because we are told that my job as a mom is to protect my children and to provide for them just like God protects and provides all of us that's not my job my job is to give them tools. It is my responsibility as their mother to provide for them. Not my job. It's my responsibility because I brought them into the world. So they don't have to thank me for protecting them or feeding them. They, they can expect that of me. Just like if you create a world, people can expect that, you know, there will be food in that world. We don't have to thank God for that. Um, so my children don't have to thank me for all of that. That's not my job. My job is to give them tools so that they are the healthiest version of themselves. So because I have more tools than them, not because I'm better, just because I have more tools, just because I've lived longer. Uh, but one day we'll share tools together because that's how relationships work. One day they'll share their tools with me. And I was just having dinner with my dad last night. We drank way too many mojitos, by the way. But, you know, we, we sat down. I sat down with my dad and we had dinner and uh, we shared tools. He's, he's no longer just giving me tools. He's no longer in charge of protecting me. And especially in that relationship of dad and daughter, um, there is no, you know, none of that is happening. We are two human beings who deeply love each other, who respect one another, who are sharing tools with one another. And so I think that in inside of churches, um, the invitation is not so much come and be a part of something. You already are. You're already part of this thing that divinity is doing in the world. You already belong. Instead is how can we share tools with you 
um, that you may not have or may not have access to? How can we share tools with you? How can we be um, of service to you? How can we, and, and what are tools that you'd like to share with us? Are there any tools that you'd like to share with us that perhaps we don't have yet, or maybe we have, but we need more of? So it becomes a symbi symbiotic relationship. I always say symbiotic, but it's symbiotic. I actually don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, so it becomes that, you know, church has become these spaces where we are living together uh, in community, sharing tools and caring deeply for one another, where we understand that I am not okay if you are not okay. And I am so deeply committed to my healing because I know how deeply interconnected it is to your healing. So I am not going to stop your healing by stopping mine. We're going to heal together. And the days that you are up and I, you need me to just, or I need you to lift me up, I'll be there and vice versa. And we're going to show up for one another because we are not healing in silos. Instead, we're healing together. We're healing in community. We're sharing tools with one another. So, and it, it mirrors really the relationships that you have inside of a home with a family. You are not, there are no parents and children uh, and the parents know it all and the children are just subjected to them. Instead, we are a community that is symbiotic and that is sharing together, growing together, expanding together, moving together, um, taking territories, what I like to call it, even though that sounds really militaristic, but taking territory towards heaven, moving together towards heaven. What does it look like to be heaven? So I have a print in my home that I made that says heaven is our home. Uh, we're not, we start here. If my home is not heaven, I cannot create heaven anywhere else. And it starts here. If my life is not heaven, <laughs> my home is not heaven. If my home is not heaven, how dare I even think about heaven anywhere else? Instead, the, the, the honesty of saying, right now it's hell here. It's hell. And I'm going to need some people to help me make it heaven more. I'm going to need safety to make it heaven. And that's, it is my opinion that the church truly is um, the hope of the world. But that church, that, those communities that are deeply committed to one another, that are deeply uh, invested in one another, that have, it is, it is love, true, honest, genuine love, what will change everything. And churches have the potential of becoming that love. Uh, and that love is, I see you. I see you. I completely, 100%, I see you, you. That's life-giving. You know, that, that does bring the heaven to earth. And I think when I hear you, I hear you talking, um, I mean, I get, I get incredibly excited and I can imagine so many others getting incredibly excited. And then there's also this sense um, that I can imagine for some people is, well, you just took away all my boundaries. You, 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 took, you took away like, you know, you know, because in a sense, and, and not that this equates uh, perfectly because it doesn't, in a sense, an abuser is creating boundaries in, in exerting control. They're saying you could do this, but you can't do that. And then there's right. a God that does this. I see what you're thing, saying. Right. Mm -hmm. Um and there's a God who says, you can do this. I love you this way, but you can't. Don't, don't go there. And so for us, for those of us who like um, to have the boundaries, who like to go right up to the edge without going over, that's, that's in some ways something that directs our lives. And what you're talking about is taking that away. And so in taking that away, what, what creates um, well, heaven? I mean, what creates it? You talked a little bit about it being love, right? And, and I agree fully. Like, we're here to love one another. In fact, one of our our values at our church is uncommon kinship. We have a group of people who 
you know, under normal circumstances, um, probably wouldn't have any business being together, but here we are working to love each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's one way, but, but how do you, how do you present this to, as good news to a large group of people who are afraid to move in that direction, who are afraid to move yeah. outside of boundaries? Yeah. Because, I mean, when we're talking about love, again, we have to recognize the fact that most um, individuals have frameworks of love that have been deeply influenced by an abusive society that tells us that love is control, that tells us that love. So when you speak to me about love, I'm going to be like, nope, no, especially within a Christian framework, right? Like, no, when you talk about love, you're talking about control. When you talk about love, you're talking about all those, I call them barriers, all those barriers that I have to just kind of be inside of. Um, but when we are able to reframe love as belonging, as just this, you have this intrinsic belonging, you belong here. Um, when you are able to reframe love as acceptance, you are accepted here and not the version of you that is palatable, not the version of you that behaves, not the version of you um, after you have your coffee, but the first, the one that wakes up cranky, that one, that one is acceptable too. The one that lost it, and, and screamed and had a bad day and um, had all of their traumas, you know, come back to them and had all these trauma responses. That version of you, that version of you is accepted too. And he's, and he belongs here too. That doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. That's why I wanted to make the differentiation. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'll tolerate <laughs> abusive behavior. Um, but it does mean that I see you. I can see why you're responding the way you're responding. I can see why you're behaving the way that you're behaving. I, I see the person that you are beyond, um, beyond what you show. I can see that. And you, I accept you. And I love you. And you belong to me. We belong to one another. And creating that safety. And so I speak a lot about my children because my ch I see the I see my children. Nobody knows my children better than I do because I'm with them every single day, right? I put them to bed. I clean their puke when they are tired or sick. Um, I have to wake up with them at night when they are having a bad nightmare. But they never stop belonging to me through any of that. We belong to one another. Our belonging to one another is intrinsic. And there are too many... And, and our society has told us, you belong so long as. You belong if you fit into these narratives. You belong if you don't expand. I, I like to see it as, um, there is, my mother-in-law bought me an, um, what are those things called that people are taking down all over the world? Uh, they are made of stone. This is why having English as a second language doesn't help me. Um, they are made of stone and they are a person that somebody, and they put them in the middle of a park or statues, statues. Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> so my mother-in-law bought I don't me even know. a statue. I had no idea. It's not a statue, but it's a little, like, it's a small little statue thingy and it's a woman. And, uh, from the waist down, she is a block of cement. She's like a block of cement and her body is all mangled. There are pieces of her skin that are gone and she has a chisel and a, hammer in the other hand chiseling one hand hammer in the other hand and she is chiseling her way out of the cement and that's the journey of healing she said she bought it because it reminded her of me so when she dies i get it that's literally what she said when you die when i die you get these um and it's this beautiful uh, sculpture sculpture god it's not it wasn't even what i was describing sculpture so 
that's the journey of healing, right? I am chiseling my way out of the boxes that you told me I have to fit into. I was born and I was thrown into this box. And then all of these different things, religion, societal expectations, parenting started pouring cement and making sure that I was neat and small. And as we start healing, we start chiseling our way out, moving and taking up space. And when people take up space, they are not accepted. They are, they get people that are really angry that we are taking up space. And so safe spaces, safe churches, safe communities are spaces where I say, not only will I help you chisel your way out of this mess, but on top of that, whatever comes out is already accepted. You get to expand, you, you get to take space. You don't have to shrink yourself to belong here. Instead, we want to see all of you. Uh, parts of you that you don't even know exist. I don't know what my feet look like outside of this cement block. I, I recognize that one day I bit my nails for about 33 years. I stopped biting them about five years ago. And I remember thinking at one point, I do not know who I am without anxiety. I don't know her. I don't know, I don't know how she acts. I don't know how she reacts. I don't know what she looks like. And it is my life's purpose to meet her. I want to meet her without anxiety. I want to meet that person that I was created to be without anxiety. And that's the chiseling out of the box of cement. And that happens, a lot of that work is individual, but that can only happen within community. You don't get to chisel your way out without community. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. You don't, you, you don't have the ability to chisel your way out. You can, you can make some progress, probably get some arm out, um, but to fully be free and liberated, you need to be free and liberated in the context of relationships and in the context of community, because that's where you put into practice all of the healing that you've been doing on your own. And if you cannot put it into practice, your liberation is not real. It's all cognitive knowledge. Putting it into practice and having relationships where you have to practice your liberation, where you have to practice the freedom and the, the, the one that is expanding um, becomes then experiential knowledge. It becomes you. And experiential knowledge is the only way to become it. Um, cognitive knowledge is just what you know. It doesn't, I mean, it's great, but it's what you know. Uh, experiential knowledge is who you are. And so churches become the places where we get to practice our liberation um, because we get to be in relationship with one another and mess up and hurt one another and show up and apologize and practice true repentance and continue to say you still belong to me we still belong to one another and to me nothing could be more restorative or beautiful um, than practicing liberation together <laughs> <laughs>